0: Welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our wonderful radio syndicates uh, across the country, or even on the podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca, which can be listened to everywhere, including in space, or under, or, you know, deep under the Earth's crust as well,
1: uh, I presume. Those swimming, those swimming... Those swimming golden aliens under the earth are uh, all listening to our podcast.
0: Yes, exactly. That's that's at least thirty percent of our readership. I understand our listenership. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, this, of course, is uh, seven hosts. That are, uh, one of your co-hosts. Uh, Saren uh, is is our tech, and we'll jump in as they can. Uh, Dave's also in studio, and we have Lauren on the line. Lauren. Hey there. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing pretty well. The uh, swimming golden aliens comment kind of lost me, but. We're uh, <laughs>
1: not aware island. of the hollow earth.
2: <laughs> you know, I think I read Journey to the Center of the Earth in like the fourth grade, mm. but. Uh...
0: <laughs> well, the, uh, it, it, they're just right there. It's, it, the problem is that they always fall off it because the earth is flat. So they actually just, they're there and then they just sort of fall. Uh,
2: right, of course.
0: Because this gravity goes down. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. All right. Now that we've gotten through all of our uh, our nonsensical science, moving on to more reasonable science. Uh, We've got a good show for you today. It is uh, covering uh, some some news at the beginning. We've jam packed all the depressing news into the first 20 minutes of the show. Uh, And the last 40 minutes will be dramatically kids and art. Yes. (laughs) Well, the first middle section will be will be about circle economy stuff. And the last section is kids and art. So I feel like the last 40 minutes of the show are are much more uh, hope. Uh, And in the first 20 minutes is a little more, a little more just about where we're at right now, which is a gray, rainy Friday. Mm. Uh, But uh, but thanks so much. And we're starting with Extinction Rebellion, sort of follow up from our our show last week, uh, because, of course,
1: Monday was the first major day of action. Uh, So, Dave, how is that going? The International Extinction Rebellion is in full swing in London and beyond, with activists supergluing their hands to doors, windows, lorries, and trains, climbing on top of trains, defacing the glass entrance to a shell building, chaining themselves to Jeremy Corbyn's front yard fence, and occupying the International Criminal Court in The Hague. The rebellion maintains that it will forge on relentlessly until the government tells the whole scientific truth about climate change as a direct and immediate threat to the safety of its citizens and acts on a scale commensurate with that threat. Over 400 arrests have been made in London alone, as activists successfully blockaded key points around central London in a bid to bring the economic machine to a halt until it is reformed into a sustainable and democratically run enterprise rather than the international web of untouchable oligarchies it has become. There were arrests made also this week in New York when protesters lay down in the middle of the street on the philosophy that no change ever happens in the U.S. unless people peacefully put their bodies on the line. Four people were arrested in Halifax on Monday, and Extinction Rebellion groups have popped up around the rest of Canada, but not yet on the scale required for any real economic disruption. Uh, Extinction Rebellion Halifax stated, quote, Media outlets have a duty to convey the truth about the crisis to the public, work with scientists to educate the public on the nature of the threat, hold other decision makers to account for inaction, and stop giving a voice to deniers and delayers. Critics of the movement have not been very cogent in their opposition, relying on insults and nonsensical arguments based on the idea that anyone who criticizes our society must be perfect themselves in every way lest they be guilty of hypocrisy. One of the tactics has been to suggest that the Extinction Rebellion movement is privileged and elitist and anti-working class. A reigning idea of Extinction Rebellion is, however, to dismantle the anti-democratic powers that have been transferring wealth from the working and middle classes to the richest sections of society since the 1970s. We now have a scenario where the richest 26 people in the world have the same net worth as the bottom half of the global population. That's 26 individuals owning as much wealth as the poorest 3.8 billion people. While perhaps not these specific 26, a number of these billionaires, people who give tens of millions of dollars to both major parties in the United States, are not even connected to anything remotely productive and often, man- and often manage or are connected to hedge funds that hire math petitions to, tra- to build tracking and data analysis algorithms to game the stock market. As former bank regulator Bill Black said, quote, all they do is make one group of millionaires, billionaires slightly richer than another group of billionaires, and in the process they make themselves billionaires, but they add absolutely nothing to the economy or the world generally. Bill McKibben recently stated in an interview with Democracy Now!, quote, I tried to answer the question of why we did so little for so long, and I think it has everything to do with the ascendant political ideology of this period that markets alone would solve problems. That happened to be the dominant political philosophy in the most important country in the world at precisely the most important moment. It's no accident that people like the Koch brothers, our biggest political players, are also oil and gas barons. They understood climate change as a threat both to their business and to their ideological worldview, because if we're going to solve it, we're going to have to take joint action as societies to do so. The situation is so absurd that even rational and respected thinkers like George Monbiot are beginning to sound like theorists of the lizard people conspiracy. In the Extinction Rebellion talk that we mentioned last week, Monbiot ended with a discussion of the psychological stratification of societies of our kind. He stated that the common characteristic of societies that have gone extinct are ones that have been governed by oligarchies, quote, by a very small number of people who had almost absolute power over everybody else and the short-term interests of the oligarchs were radically different to the long-term interests of the rest of us. I'm not saying that even the Koch brothers want everybody to become extinct, but they seem to be saying that they will pursue their interests regardless of whether we become extinct or not. He then claimed that the psychologies of people in power are very different from the majority, in that most people are not governed by greed, self-interest, and material self-regard, but rather a desire for cooperation and community, and wanting each other to be okay. But, he argues, those in power are, in fact, governed by greed and self-interest, and they use their power in the media to convince us that we are too. As Bill McKibben said, quote, So now we're at a point where we have no choice but to hope we can build movements big enough, loud enough, beautiful enough to challenge that power. I don't know if we're going to win, but we're definitely going to have a fight. And as Monbiot concluded, quote, With Extinction Rebellion, with the youth climate strikes... We are seeing the rising that I have been waiting for for the 33 years of my campaigning life. This is not the beginning of the end, but the beginning of the beginning, the beginning of the great mass movement. So many of us have been hoping to see for so long. It starts this year and it starts with us.
0: I think I'll say that um, Man Beyond has been a fascinating speaker, given that he has been talking about biosphere collapse for so long. Um, And it's interesting actually to see him regain hope. I, I had sort of I had lost hope that Man- Manbiot would regain any hope. Uh, I've been reading him for so long that I sort of figured that he had he had he had you know, presumably all done. I think it not having hope is his brand, isn't it? Well, exactly. Yeah, he's ruining his brand. He thinks we can do it now. Uh, um, but but I, but it, but I think that's important. I think actually that is actually an indication of of how. Uh, how we are seeing this 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 rising uh, youth movement uh, of youth uh, and Lauren, you're a little more plugged into that than the rest of us uh, and so so how do you sort of see where we're at generally?
2: Yeah I mean listening to um, Monbiot's words right then when David was reading about like I I don't know I, I hope he's right like I feel like <laughs> like everybody you sort of oscillate back and forth between like laying in bed like overcome with despair and then like, Maybe you're out at a rally that day, and you leave feeling really, really good. Like one of the things I was thinking about was related to Extinction Rebellion this week is, is we have quite an active um, chapter in, in Ottawa. They're they're not they're not huge, but like there's like a fair a fairly like decent sized group of people, and they're and they're super active. They're always getting out doing really awesome things. And and one of the things they did this past week was um was like a traffic blockade. But um, talking to them, they said it was actually a really, really positive experience because they were like they brought treats out for people and were and were engaging with the drivers that they had stopped for a few minutes that day. So it ended up not being like a really terrible combative experience for them. It was really positive. So so hearing things like that is really fantastic and seeing people out who are who are so willing to be so reactive because I know some of the groups I engage with. Um, we're we're quite pensive in, in 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 our actions and in our decision making, um, and sometimes we end up missing opportunities because of that. Um, so so it's kind of cool to see people who are super rad and super keen to just kind of like throw themselves into stuff um, and and cause a stir. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I don't know. No, no, don't worry about it. It's um feeling feeling good right now. Looking at all the Extinction Rebellion stuff, and and yeah, like again, like George Monbiot said. Um, all of the youth action and and uh our time was announced this week and and the buzz around the green new deal but but then you also turn around and you see that um conventional politics is being ruled by by the right and um, and by right-wing populists and, and then you go back to feeling kind of bummed out about it
0: yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, there's a there to actually well, It's a great segue to to the to the second story um, mm. uh, of Jason about Jason Kenney's sort of. Uh, yeah, words. I was
1: also just gonna say that I did that. There were police uh, dancing with protesters in London, having themselves a time, and there were several many uh, interviews uh, with people in cars who were also in support. Even they were being inconvenienced, but they were also in support of the protesters.
0: Yeah, oh. yeah. They've they've done an interesting job of, of actually trying to because it's a it's a sort of switch of thinking that all of us are a part of this. You know that anyone who is sort of you mm. know, being whether it's inconvenienced or, or or like they're all they're all they're all needed to, to join in basically. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, let's let's get onto the slightly more depressing part.
1: So in Canadian nah. news, uh, we have two new developments in Alberta and Ontario that indicate an increasingly surreal government grip on public discourse over environmental issues. Alberta has just elected the United Conservative Party, led by uh, Jason Kenney, a career politician and lobbyist who never finished his undergraduate philosophy degree, having refused to return to the Jesuit school he was studying at in California after they declined his anti-free speech petition that sought to stifle pro-choice groups on campus. His petition argued that if they allowed pro-choice advocates a voice, they would also have to provide a platform for pedophiles and the Church of Satan. Kenny had vowed well before the election to set up a war room to mercilessly hound and defeat activist opposition to the Albertan oil and gas sector. He has a number of specific actions he claims to be planning to take, having stated during the campaign, along with outgoing NDP Premier Rachel Notley, that Alberta's failure to get new pipelines built has stemmed directly from meddling uh, by foreign billionaires. One of Kenny's moves will be to, quote, challenge the charitable status of groups that are funneling foreign money into anti-Alberta campaigns. This seems to imply that any group that receives money from donors outside of Canada could be dismantled through legal action by the provincial government, only, however, if that group criticizes the Alberta oil industry. A lot of this animus stems from the writings of Vivian Krauss, who has claimed that the Rockefeller Foundation is trying to choke Canadian oil in favor of its American counterpart, and that progressive news outlets like the National Observer are in the pocket of the Tides Foundation. In fact, our very own Green Majority podcast has recently received the christening honor of public suggestion that we too are in the pocket of the Tides Foundation. Uh,
0: Let it be on note, we are not. Well, no,
3: to be fair, technically, we just haven't received a check yet.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. Ever. Uh, um, we're, we're still waiting for that first check, Tides. I, I, <laughs> my favorite thing about this, whenever this happens, uh, is, is always this question of, um, then, then why am I so poor? You know, like, well, like if all of these if all of these are like, I, you know, you meet all these organizations and all these people who are fighting for this. And it's like and it's very clear that they're that they are not that these are not well-funded people. You know, these are people who are making it work as well as they can. Um, uh, but I, I wonder. But there's a more a much more insidious and much more dangerous part of, of the rhetoric that Kenny is doing, um, which is that. Which is that basically um, the the he's already literally even before actually the election, but he's already created a space in which, you know, the 350 activists and other activists uh, who work in environmental change in Alberta are being targeted uh, by by people right now. Um, they're they are receiving death threats for even talking about Alberta politics. Who um, is uh, environmental activists? Mm. Um, and and it, and it's happening. Like, like there's and there's like you know I, I happen to be on Twitter and a and a and a, and a, and a person from from. From out, east, out west, uh, was was sort of had retweeted one of the things that she'd received. It basically was a threat to run her over, and then a series of threatening emojis. And so I reported that one, and then it of like, oh, what else are these? And you go down. It's the same person has been threatening this this one this one young woman over and over again in ways that are directly threatening violence. Um, and in case you're wondering how quickly uh, get, uh, Twitter would get on something like this, uh, I reported it last night, and 12 hours later they remain up. So. Um, don't rely on our tech overlords to help us either. But uh, I, Lauren, I want to go to you.
2: Um, yeah, uh, one of the one of the things that I just saw before before we um, we got on the air today is, um, and it's just sort of indicative of like this entire situation and how truly terrible it is that, that Kenny got in when we all knew he was going to. But um, there's an Alberta librarian. Who's archiving uh, provincial government online content, um, specifically content that relates to health and climate change and, and policy and government and um, poverty reduction? Uh, and she started doing it um, in the lead up to to the change of government, uh, out of fear that that like the Trump government and like the um, Ford government, um, all of this information and all of these programs will be deleted off of off of government websites. Um, so she's been archiving it on on Wiley and on. Um, on um, the University of, of Alberta's uh, library pages, um, and I think that's just sort of, yeah, in, indicative of, of the era we're living in right now, and of what a Kenny government means for means for Alberta. Um, the other thing I wanted to plug, if I can actually, is um, those same activists that you were mentioning, um, Stefan, um, are kind of launching their own version of a of a counter war room to Jason Kenny, um, and. They they have a GoFundMe. So if listeners are eager to support young activists uh, living and working on like the front lines of these battles in in Alberta, um, and help them with their own version of a war room, there's there's a GoFundMe. Um, if you were to search War Room to beat Kenny's War Room, it'll it'll show up right away. <laughs> That's great.
0: Yeah, and I'll and I'll and I'll uh, we'll make sure it gets up on our uh, on our Twitter page as well. Uh, I've, I'll retweet that stuff and get that there. Um, but uh, let's let's go again uh, to the the last piece of depressing news uh, that we have uh, for this section, uh, which is sup- unsurprisingly from our own Ontario's Doug Ford.
1: So yes, in Ontario, Doug Ford's propaganda campaign against climate mitigation of all kinds continues with a new plan to force gas stations to put anti-carbon tax stickers on their pumps. If gas stations do not comply with the measure, they could be fined up to $10,000. Perhaps he thinks this may help him raise revenues for the province after running a campaign against government waste, but subsequently losing more provincial money in 10 months than the previous government did in four years. In terms of the costs stemming from the firing of the CEO of Hydro One alone, as the CBC reports, the Ontario government will spend tens of millions of dollars to save six million.
0: Yeah, and and I'll point out that the. the- I saw a stat about this uh, that, that was that was earlier, earlier today, which was noting that uh, so he's also cut. Uh, well, we, we'll have to do a whole show basically uh, about about the amount of things that Doug Ford has decided to, to take on uh, that are that are all good and positive. But one of them is is the library system, uh, which which yesterday we received news that it's getting fifty percent of it cut, and and the example uh, one of the examples I heard was that. The cutting uh, one of the things that's being cut in that in that larger thing is inter is interlibrary transfers of different things. Um, and so uh, and and the price of uh, of those inter interlibrary transfers. So if you want a book, someone else will bring you a book and all those types of that type of usefulness, um which especially when you're in in smaller communities where it's much harder to get to some of this stuff is is really quite important.
3: it's let's just put a fine <laughs> point on that. It's the difference between <laughs> some files on your computer and having the internet.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you can't get it from anywhere else. It's yeah, the system is 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 broken. Um, the that the, even just the price of that uh, that is only that the that that is the the if they wanted to get that back, it's one third of the cost of these stickers. So they've decided that wow. that they've decided that 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 people who need who want access to books. Uh, cannot have them, um, but uh, but you can have these stickers. Which again, in fact, you must, and you, you must have these or stickers. Or you're going to exactly. pay us a bunch of money. Yeah, which is just it's just ludicrous. It's it's it's, it's one of those things where you, if these were climate change stickers, the whole the whole um, which you know our, our friend on the show Rob Her- Shirky has been pushing forever, um, uh, the whole industry would, would rise up saying how oh, this is uh, the big government forcing something on them. But when it's a conservative government saying you have to get ten thousand uh, dollars or or these stickers are paid us to doesn't are fine. suddenly that's just that's just Ontario fighting for itself or something. Uh, but Lauren, I want to go to you.
2: Oh God, like, I, I don't even know where to start with, with this. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Um, the, I guess the other thing sort of that, that the Ford government rolled out this week that's super fun um, that I wanted to mention was um, sort of uh, the, the announcement of um, uh, sort of new attacks against um, sort of endangered species and habitat protection. By the Ford government, um, and in fact, there's there's new uh, legislature. The, the piece I read was obviously not the most unbiased piece of literature, but it was on, <laughs> on the Suzuki website. Um, but it was talking about how um, species that are listed as endangered or threatened may lo- may like no longer be automatically protected under law, um, and that this new weird pay to proceed system is being is being put in place whereby um, uh, industry and development that is threatening to endangered species or species at risk. Um, will now be able to pay X amount of dollars, basically, to, to bypass um, species at risk protection acts and and, and laws. So uh, that is a little bit more sort of traditionally environmental and conservation-based news than than climate change stickers. But um, And yet,
3: simultaneously kind of feels <laughs> like a carbon tax. <laughs> right? At the same time, weirdly feels like a carbon tax that somebody's really upset about. Weird. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. No, well, no, And. The, the agency that they're putting in place is is called the Species at Risk Conservation Trust. Oh
0: wow!
4: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. because it, and what's amazing about this, uh, which which I was I was I was reading as we came in, is is that this is that the if you want to know why uh, this is happening, uh, the major donors uh, for Ontario Proud, uh, who are in some ways responsible for the for the Ontario Conservative government, uh, was Madame Holmes. A developer that you know, know, basically, you ever listen to the radio, you hear these ads from Adamie Homes uh, because they're constantly building out in the suburbs uh, where these species live. Uh, I think for uh, most of the major Ontario proud donations that we know
1: of, came from developers. We would like to continue to make Southern Ontario an uninhabitable concrete wasteland. Uh, da, 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 da. there you go That's the whole, mm. we made a whole
0: ad for them <laughs> um, uh, but we are running out of time so uh, Lauren if you have any last thoughts uh, throw them in now and then we'll go to music break
2: um, yeah I guess the one good thing that came out of this week um, that I know we're touching on next week a little bit more but um, our time was launched which is this like really rad uh, grassroots uh, powered youth led movement pushing for a green new deal in, uh, in Canada uh, and that's really exciting and sort of a, a, a flicker of hope um, in an otherwise gray, rainy, dismal, dismal day. So, if people want to learn more about that, r-time.ca. So yeah. Kind of more
0: info. Amazing. Yeah. And we will uh, we'll have uh, an interview uh, about that in the coming weeks. Very uh, looking very much forward to it. Uh, thank you so much, Lauren. Uh, and, uh, Saren, what do we listen to?
1: The Green Majority is entirely listener supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as one dollar
0: and welcome back to the Green Majority here on ciut eighty nine point five 9.5 FM or perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country. Uh, shout out to St. John's because uh, I, re- I just noticed that, uh, that you guys listen to us. So thank you St. John's um,
1: We love St. John's
0: Yeah, it's great, great place mm-hmm. um, If you are from St. John's and listening to those tweet at us because uh, it's always fun to hear from listeners across the country um, and we have and we have, so often in this show because of because of the, the West we look West and I would like to look East more often so St. John's send us your news stories. Let's talk about the Coast sometimes, mm. um, and so but we are now moving on to slightly more well, no, definitely more positive news, um, uh, which is uh, we're talking about the circular economy. We're, we are, uh, we are joined by 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 Kim D'Oliveira. Uh, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, and I've I've decided uh, you know you have a you have an MBA in the circular economy, which is a thing that most people probably don't even know exists, um, uh, and are is our and are I'm going to call you our resident circular economy expert. for for Thank at least you. the next twenty minutes, uh, and then continuing if you come back, uh, which sounds great. Uh, but to start off, uh, can you just briefly describe what we mean when we say the circular economy?
4: So, um, for me, the best way to think of it is um, the economy as a living system. Um, so, you know, something a living system has uh, no waste. It generates a lot of abundance. Um, it regenerates itself. It restores itself. Um, so the circular economy is essentially in a in a sentence or two, thinking about the economy as a living system and saying, if we're going to make things and use things, then either they should return, be able to be returned to additional usage cycles or be able to be returned to the earth as a benign, uh, non-toxic, sort of regenerative. Um, um, items, so really, it's it's um, it's kind of about the economy as a living system in a nutshell.
0: Amazing, that's a that's a that's a good way of thinking about it. Actually, it's a new sort of of way of that we are we are we're all ecosystems, including in ecosystems that are in that are parts of economy. So what we've done here is we've come up with three stories that you suggested. Yeah. Uh Dave has sort of summarized them, and then we'll chat about them a little bit, basically. Great. Um And so let's start. Uh, let's start with you, Dave.
1: Yes, so Adele Peters reported for Fast Company back in February that a survey from ING had found that 63% of American companies are planning to develop a circular model, and that an additional 16% already have in place certain circular principles. As well, the number of U.S. companies that were thinking seriously about sustainability doubled doubled from 2018 to 2019. An example of circular efforts that Peters gives is an an Amsterdam airport paying a company for the use and upkeep of its light bulbs without buying the light bulbs outright, meaning the company has financial incentive to make their light bulbs long-lasting and easily repaired and recycled. This is an example of what is known as a product as service. Peters points out, however, that most companies are thinking of circularity simply as saving money through recycling and reducing waste, but if products are also made to last longer and the materials themselves have a longer lifespan, there will be more predictability and therefore less risk for businesses, we don't need to extract as many resources, and we'll have less pollution. Some efforts that are underway include a Heineken brewery in Mexico sending its waste sludge to fertilize nearby farms, using leftover grain as cattle feed, recycling their broken glass next door, recycling water, and using the excess heat of the nearby glass factory to run its boilers. Other companies are thinking about how to beckon their plastic products back from consumers once they're done with them. One of the reasons why plastic is so easily disposed of is that it's simply too cheap, and if its monetary value were reflected in its real price, the price of humane labor practices and environmental harm, then it may become expensive enough for companies to want to make sure they can save money by getting the product back once the consumer is done with it.
0: Yeah, so this is the, the – the, I'm perhaps somewhat um, – uh, biased in my my giddiness surrounding these types of things, uh, but specifically, <laughs> actually, around this idea of product as a service. I find it so for sure. it's so much like it's one of the things where it was first described to me uh, in the in the context of uh, I believe it was Ray Anderson in interface carpeting. um and right. and and I'm just it just seems to be it makes so much sense. Can you sort of get into that a little bit?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot to unpack from that article, but that isn't actually a really good one. And the idea is that, um, this this system we have where we purchase things and then we're sort of responsible for them through to the end of their life, which ultimately is disposal, um, really incentivizes a number of, of bad behaviors, such as making things break down faster. Um, there's sort of this idea in the circular economy of what we're experiencing now is a race to the bottom in terms of quality. So as... Um, you know, our our buying power is, is um becomes less. We sort of um look to uh, cheaper products um, that don't last as long and create additional waste. And this sort of goes all the way up. Um, even to uh, companies themselves using um, items. So the idea of um, access over ownership, of per- purchasing a service instead of the, the item itself it extends from, you know, the, the corporate business sort of level that we saw in this article all the way down to everyday goods that we use in our homes, such as our washers and dryers. Um, I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to get it, one of your washers or dryers repaired, it's almost impossible. Um, and this, we've had this experience with a number, I think all of us, of the goods that we use in our homes where um, something needs to be repaired. Um, and it's like, well, it's just cheaper to throw it away and start over. And um, this idea of access over ownership in and, and sort of creates an opportunity to end that cycle uh, but, in a way.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I feel like these, these types of stories um, – Ou... Et... It's, it's, it's actually quite hard uh, as, as as someone who is you know relatively cynical about the say of the world uh, to start you know to read to read stories that, that are sort of like this is a great thing that's happening because um, it's very difficult to figure out uh, without a deep amount of knowledge what really matters and what doesn't um, and so I'm interested in even from this sort of this story what what to you is like oh this is big uh,
4: well to the to your point there's a lot there but the business case that access um, buying a service versus buying a product could actually be, um, a financial good for a company. If you think about it, um, if you're purchasing the service of lighting, for example, for your your airport or whatever the example was in the story, um, you're actually sort of mitigating your risk um, and you're sort of helping yourself to um, you know purchase a service and have somebody who's an expert in that service provide you with the service. Um, it really does make sense in terms of, as we see, we're going to see in, increasing... Uh, sort of access to raw materials and things like that being challenged. So even on the flip side is the the company offering the service as opposed to the product. You sort of guarantee a supply of of the product. Let's say this is light bulbs, for example, indefinitely. If you're offering lighting as a service, then you have access to the materials you need to make that product. And um, you also, uh, uh, as the um, customer of that service, you sort of um, don't have to worry about you know fixing your own your own stuff and and what you do when things break and um, how to get rid of them.
0: Yeah, and it was interesting. A, a big part of this for me during the when I was thinking about the the Ray Anderson and in the, in the, in the carpeting example right. um, was that it, a, it was interesting. So a, a it was interesting that there was this sort of. Existence of this plan, um, and they, they in, in, in the story basically is sort of that I was reading it was like it didn't really work. People weren't ready for it. Now, this is twenty years ago, right? Um, and so, but the reason why they wanted to switch this model specifically was that they, so they could actually get their own raw material back, right. So they actually could then reuse it. That was the that was the incentive for them. It wasn't so much that they wanted to keep, you know, they, they understood the value of a consistent uh, amount of income coming through, in, at, you know, going forward. But for them, it was the ability to actually to own, still own the carpets. Uh, so. They could then reuse those carpets and actually and that would help them actually increase the sustainability of their whole their whole space and so I'm yeah. wondering if, if you're seeing are we getting to a place where this type of this type of thing is becoming normalized enough where you know may, we, should we expect to see more companies you know getting these products and
4: services well um, I think so and I think as consumers we're seeing it normalized a lot I mean this this idea of the sharing economy even extends to business models that we're all familiar with such as uber and Airbnb these are access capacity well, well Lisa, this was they were sort of initially conceived of, for example, Airbnb as additional capacity. Of course, the model has changed now, so we are seeing it in spurts and and flows. I think that um, when we're really going to see these things really impact our lives is when we see the prices and the costs of making newer, cheaper items just continue to rise and accessing the materials is going to become you know increasingly it's going to put companies at increasing uh risk and additional costs that they won't be able to pass on to us then we're going to start to see more of these models shift and i think that this is imminent Um, we're in a period right now sort of artificially low um petroleum prices that's a, a really strong indicator and um honestly the higher the price of of petroleum and oil goes, which it will inevitably go back up, we're going to see more of these models. It's it, this is where it becomes a no-brainer for large businesses.
0: Yeah, there's an ongoing question we've never been to answer on this show that was posed years and years ago: was whether or not was how much plastics would cost if it was not an offshoot of of oil, um, and and what that would that impact would have uh, on its own front. But you, you sort of mentioned that it's we're seeing this sort of movement towards the more consumer, to the more consumer uh, facing products. And the next second story that we sort of had covering uh, sort
1: of toxic about that. So very quickly, Dave, tell us about Loop. A circular shopping platform called Loop, not to be confused with Loop Industries, which upcycles plastic products, is creating a system for products like food, diapers, and cleaning supplies to be delivered in reusable containers that will be picked up at your door, cleaned, and refilled. So just like milk back in the day, we'll have shampoo, detergent, ice cream, mouthwash, and so on coming in metal or glass bottles owned by the company that then comes to retrieve them. At the Davos panel that announced the loop initiative, Jennifer Morgan said, quote, "What the platform uh, Jennifer Morgan of Greenpeace said, quote, "What the platform will mean for environment for the environment depends on whether corporations worldwide are actually ready to change their business models or if this effort just becomes a distracting side project to generate positive PR." Some of these companies are still, of course, expanding their production of single-use plastics.
0: Yeah, and so this is an interesting sort of move into the uh, into the consumer facing model, which is honestly uh, a harder mo- a harder place to be. I think. I think for me, the circle economy uh, really you can see the very very immediate business case within within uh, within businesses and within within structures. But as soon as you get more consumer facing, there a logistical pro- set of problems do face. Right. Um, but but I remember you telling me about this like a week ago. You're like you're quite excited about this sort of this sort of shift. And so what about this interests you?
4: Well, I think that um, for starters, companies wouldn't be offering this to, so Loop is is sort of the platform that will do the collecting Mm. of the products where um, brands will still get to market themselves, they'll still be branded, you'll still have that differentiation that's, you know, a part of what we pay for when we buy products. Um, But, you know, ultimately, Stefan, this wouldn't be happening if there wasn't interest from consumers, if consumers weren't seeing how much waste they were generating with um, this single-use sort of society. Um, And I think that that's a really interesting point. I think that's sort of the heart of this article and why um, I brought it to you is because um, to the point of the the, the individual from Greenpeace – uh, the single use this whole way that we sort of use things for one time and then dispose of them is problematic and we really shouldn't have anything ever that just has one use and then is is waste that's just basically throwing our wealth into into a pile and burying it um,
0: <laughs> or or as a case we'd be throwing our wealth into the ocean and having whales eat it
4: yeah and then we eat the whales <laughs> yeah it's it's pretty gnarly um but uh, I think that there's interest on both sides, and ultimately this will work if it is um, many more brands offering this at and many more locations. I'm sure this is sort of a, a limited pilot, um, and I think the business case is that they, you really create a sort of a stickiness. Um, with customers that you may not in sort of the fast moving consumer goods sector, which is all about quick and fast and cheap and pile pile them high, sell them cheap. Um, If you have this sort of return service that you have bought into as a brand, then customers who are interested in that will come back and buy haagen instead of Chapman's or or whatever the the pr- pertinent example is because they feel you know sort of an affiliation with um, the, the the company living their values in a way um, and you know even for folks that don't have access to recycling or proper disposal methods um, being able to um, get these get this back to the company and you know even have a subscription where you continually receive the product in these reusable containers it's it's a really interesting idea that I. I think we'll um, get some traction. We'll really see how many more brands want to jump on board, and as the time goes on.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point about the fact that you know, like we already see it actually happening with other types of apps. You know, you see that with say uh, with Ritual, the which is a you know app that lets you to purchase and buy right. stuff specifically. Uh, you know, how many people only go to places that you can get through Ritual because it's how they now get their food. Um, and it's interesting that you make that shift to uh, to this other piece of it. Um, but I do want to make sure we get to the last story. So let's just, let's touch on that and then we'll then we'll jump in.
1: So uh, California has already made plastic straws only available upon request and forced grocery stores to provide paper bags or reusable plastic bags for at least ten cents apiece and now it's looking to greatly reduce uh, the use of non-recyclable plastics. They have announced legislation to require that all single-use items sold in the state be fully recyclable, compostable, or reusable by 2030. The same legislation would force the state to divert 75% of single-use plastics from landfills. If you, uh, You'll recall that between 2009 and 2012, we did have a 5-cent plastic bag levy at all grocery stores in Toronto, which reduced plastic bag use by 53% until it was killed under our crackhead mayor, Rob Ford. An author of the proposal said, quote, "Any fifth grader can tell you that our, additional, that our addiction to single-use plastics is killing our ecosystems." The the, the 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 plastics in
0: our ecosystems, I think, is something that um, is perhaps uh, visually so striking um, that it is it comes so close. I think it's the, to me it is the closest thing to, um, to 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 climate change that sort of from a level of just overt uh, destruction. Uh, that can be seen you know I mentioned the whale because I think last week we reported that there was a whale that had 40 kilograms of plastic in I saw that yeah. and, and, and 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 you know they found plastic in the in, in the bottom of the deepest parts of the ocean right like this the 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 fossils that are of, of our time will be the plastic that coats the ground the bottom of the oceans um, and so and so this move toward against that uh, to to reduce as much as possible seems quite important but um. and and in California is in, is taking it like, taking this on quite seriously it seems. Um, uh, but is this sort of
4: are we heading somewhere with this? Is this like is this Definitely. how you do this? Okay, I think so. And I think the the reason I picked this article in um, because it really speaks to design. So mm. um, it's in in Ontario we have a sort of a law we're putting into place where producers of waste products plastics will have to pay for them to be recycled. What this law the difference between this law and our law is that this law is really forcing it back up the supply chain, back to the point where brands design the products and the plastic containers they use. And it's saying, now you have requirements on the way you design it. You're not only, you can't just do business as usual and then find a way to get rid of it via recycling, which is a a stopgap solution. It's the least um, beneficial solution. Now you have to take it back to the board and say, this is by design to be recovered in California Um, It has to be reusable or, or whatever the stipulations were. So I think that's a really interesting part about this. And just to one more point about your plastic that you mentioned, we're, plastic is a symbol of everything else that we do it's just so much more durable and long lasting in a way that it sort of has become this symbol but really plastic is a, is a metaphor for absolutely everything else that we do in our society in terms of uh, use and, and waste
0: yeah um, and so, uh, so I'm going to give you one last question um, before we go to the music break uh, which, is, which is on that one topic because I think I, we didn't get, get to it as much so we'll, we'd love to have you back to talk more about this because um, I, the one thing I'm so fascinated about here is uh, is this idea of design? Because to me, design ends up being everything. You know, right. in that, in that it is, in that we can do all these other stuff. We can make sure we're as recyclable as possible. But ultimately, if you haven't started from the very beginning with design, then you haven't done anything else. So, can you talk very quickly to start about the importance of design within uh, within this sort of work?
4: Well, I mean, think of the way our metabolism works. Um, we are designed to take in materials. We are designed to metabolize them, provide nutrition and circulation to every part of our body. This is a design. Um, we need that same level of intentionality with everything that we we make, um, use, buy, create in our in our economy in our world. If we want to be around and have a, a level of prosperity in the future, um, so we can definitely talk more about design and. Uh,
0: amazing thank you so much thank you yeah thanks so much uh so we have a special uh we have a special music break uh i'll I'll let saren introduce that saren
3: so they're always special but this one is extra special because we rarely have the pleasure of actually having the uh the artist in the studio the the song is on an mp3 we've we have never quite reached the level of live music in studio but we have live uh band members that's pretty awesome so introducing (laughs) Walo to introduce their own song
1: Hi, I'm Rupert Davies.
5: I'm Charlotte Houston.
1: And we go by the name Waylo.
5: We're an electronic pop R&B duo from Toronto.
1: I first met Charlotte at the Berklee School of Music five-week summer program, uh, and after we discovered we both lived in Toronto, we were really excited to continue to work on music together.
5: Uh, we're in the process of recording our EP, but our first single, Distant, is out now, um, and we also have an upcoming show on May 11th at the Burdock Brewery.
1: We're so excited to be here showcasing our debut single for the first time on the radio. Uh, we just want to thank the Green, Ma- the Green Majority Show for having us. And be sure to follow us on our Instagram at Music and the major streaming services.
5: To choose when we stopped So hard, hard to give up Cause I keep on feeling, yeah Thinking that you're with her right now Has got me six shots deep in the ground Memories we play in my head Cause they get so fuzzy the deeper I get Why don't you tell me your game It's fucking no girls your name stuck with these words in my head can't seem to sleep in my bed why don't you tell me your game it's fucking no girls your name boy. but stuck with these words in my head can't seem to sleep in my bed
3: I couldn't hear. Me. Now you can hear me. So that was really great. Um, I'm so happy that that we were uh, offered those local musicians. It's a real pleasure to get them in there, and I really did enjoy that song. So wishing them the best of luck. But we are now back in the regular studio, and uh, I forgot that I did an intro today, so I haven't introduced myself. If you don't listen to the Green Majority, I am your uh, normal host, Aaron Kaster, and these days your tech. Uh, I'm now putting on my third hat of the day, which is my interviewer hat, and it is my absolute genuine pleasure to have Andrew Davies back in the studio, the executive director for uh, the number. Center. I'm sorry, is that the, the proper name of the larger organization, Number Nine Art? Uh,
6: number Nine Contemporary Art and the Environment. Yeah. That's the one.
3: I'm sorry about that. No problem. <laughs> Andrew, we had you in. Uh, remind me now. I think it was four
6: years ago. Yeah, it was a while back. I, wow. Wow. I- yeah,
3: um, but I really remembered it because it was just it was a really interesting project, and I and I remember wishing you well after you left, and and it was great to, to for you to email me again, and and I'm really glad that you did, um, because it turns out you've been doing very well, and you're in the middle of expanding and a really amazing new program we're going to be talking about. So the the focus of today is to talk about the gardens, but just before we do the hyper focus, in case people weren't listening to us four years ago, can you just in a f- just a couple of sentences just give the high level of number nine as an organization and your role there?
6: Yeah, sure. So we are a federally registered charity. In- And we uh, basically started back in 2006 uh, with the goal of using art and design to bring awareness to environmental issues. So we were working a lot with artists and doing public installations. We did a great project on the Don River with uh, a group called BGL. And we've done many projects that actually engage schools uh, in the discussion about building sustainable communities. And... And a big focus of ours is to bring real architects into the classroom and work with grade seven and eight students and have them design a scale model of their sustainable neighborhood based on our nine pillars of sustainability, things like waste management, water management, alternative energy and then they end up presenting this, these ideas to their local city councillor. and so uh, we've actually engaged over three thousand students in five major north american cities so far and so that programs going really really well and we're really uh, energized about how we're uh, empowering these youth to build these sustainable communities and think about their future uh... the gardens is like uh... the kind of meeting place so the home base uh, the place for everybody to come and learn about how to live sustainably. And so I'm really excited to, to talk about the launch of that.
3: Yeah, so that's going to be uh, – it's a new 40-acre um, uh, pro- property uh, near Elgin, uh, Ontario. Uh, I'm looking at some of your artist renditions here that you've got. in uh, The the facility just looks um, fantabulous. But the, really, of course, the, the main goal here is to um, – pass on environmental uh, learning but in a a very applied sense and so one of the things that I think is really so exceptional about this was uh, you really as you said during the explanation of what number nine references this is really a comprehensive sustainability program in the sense that there's um, you're looking very specifically at, at food systems, but you're also looking at like the, the farming that goes into it and the land practices and the building practices. You really have carried that through in every aspect. So perhaps we can just sort of go through them and how they apply specifically to the garden, specifically uh, greenhouse gases uh, and food waste and, and things like that.
6: Yeah. So food waste is a big, big focus and, and growing diverse organic uh, crops is also one of our main objectives at number nine garden. So You're correct, it's a 40 acre lot. It's uh, located 30 minutes north of Kingston. We have a partnership with Queen's University and St. Lawrence College already. Uh, We are talking with Carleton University who love to get UFT. On board, it's really a a kind of uh, facility that will allow for the next generation to explore how they might want to create more resilient systems. And so, food obviously, if we look at the global situation with food waste. Uh, if you were to look at the data and uh, compare it to other countries, food waste would be the third largest emitter com- next to China and the United States. So it's all about the transportation, uh, the emissions that occur through that, and then when the waste occurs because we're bringing in things from outside of our local geographic area, then those that produce ends up in landfill because it's not quite – good enough to sell and then you get all this kind of waste. So the solution is to grow things locally. And then then there's the issue of like uh, the other stat that uh, uh, 40, uh, uh, it's something like uh, in our farmers, uh, their age, uh, 55% are over the age of 50 and only 9% are under the age of 40. So it's a crisis coming up where you have whole generation that doesn't really know a lot about farming and doesn't really have access to great farming property and so the gardens number nine gardens is really uh, an opportunity to try to address that issue it's like how do we get people growing food again how do we support our cities how do we grow locally how do we do it within a hundred kilometers of our municipalities And we need to provide uh, property. And I think the green belt has been a huge success. We're not great at uh, sort of championing ourselves, but I've done some research and it's probably the best in the world as far as the kind of soft infrastructure of having like local farmer markets, education and those kind of things. We're trying to take that model and take it a little bit further east uh, and deal with the sort of Rideau Lakes uh, area.
3: Yeah. And you're and you're dealing with things um, from such a comprehensive point of view. And since you're talking about agriculture and things like organic farming, the very, very hands on, very uh, green thumb sort of hands in dirt experience. But you're also covering things all the way out to policy. And so one of the other things that you talk about here uh, is the model for feeding our cities. Can you talk a little bit about the policy aspect and and how like specifically what would the students be doing or what would the attendees be doing? Are they learning about policy? Are you creating plans? Uh, Let's talk about that a bit.
6: Yeah, so this this strategy kind of came out of uh, a course I did over at the London School of Economics. So I did 18 months of an executive master's in cities. And what came out of that and all the data globally is that we're basically sucking out all of the sort of rural areas. And, you know, people are moving more and more towards the the urban context. And what that does is it basically depletes those areas of any sort of uh, economy or any kind of growth opportunity. And uh, so then on on top of that is we're we're importing all of our food. And you mentioned the sort of greenhouse gas impact of that. So the concept is to protect land, to develop policies that would protect land around these municipalities uh, and allow for sort of local food growth but then also to establish policies with institutions within those municipalities. So the cities themselves, the institutes, the universities, the hospitals, if they could create a policy, a procurement policy of actually uh, getting 10% of their food locally, then you will already start a kind of instant economy, right? And then, so what we're trying to do is get the students involved with these ideas of like how they can get uh, encouraged different policies. and as you know, students are, uh, you know, they're serviced by the university. They all have to eat and they can start to uh, indicate how they want to get their food and where they want to get their food from.
3: So one of the um, we, we've talked a lot about the comprehensive nature of things that you cover there, and, and there's a lot in the middle between those two things. We sort of covered the extreme. Um, we can go into more detail there, but uh, I just want to give people a sense of. Um, so I believe uh, you said you're actually opening properly in the, the end of September. Is that correct?
6: Yeah. So we we've, we've actually uh, leased the property now. And we have our site permit, and we're we're phasing the operation. It's it's basically a five year build out because we we're actually uh, we started a launch a capital campaign for five million dollars to build out all the different infrastructure that we want one is a major culinary school and then we have artists residents and we have uh like workshops uh ceramics woodworking um and then we have we're gonna have some yurts on site for people to stay in we're gonna have these design sleeping cabins we want to run a competition for these sleeping cabins so it's really quite exciting but uh we're, so we're giving ourselves three years to raise the funds, and in those three years, we're doing a series of kind of workshops and festivals. And our big, our next biggest festival is uh, September thirtieth.
3: Yeah. Well, uh, Andrew, the, the reminder that the show does have national reach here, so it's not impossible that there are potential investors out there listening. So if you <laughs> uh, if you have a million dollars or less, so you'd like to involve quite seriously, reach yes. out to Andrew. They're yes. they're taking money. Um, but let's. So the reason I wanted to clarify that was um, I just want to give people a really clear picture because I'm sure many people are already like, Hey, this sounds really cool. I want to mm-hmm. learn more. So what would actually signing up look like? Is this am I, am I wrong to sort of think of it as like a camp? What's the actual format of the students? So
6: we're. It's being uh, proposed as a sustainability and reconciliation center, mm-hmm. and um, so it's it's mostly focused on education. But there are sort of um, there is a kind of uh, aspect to it that is about ecotourism. So in the high summer months in Rideau Lakes, a very popular area, great uh, activities: biking, canoeing, uh, hiking, uh, swimming, and all of those kinds of things. Fishing, and so. We really want to, as to your point, it's a very holistic kind of experience, and um, so for September we'll be showcasing some of that, obviously it's the culinary component, it's a bit of a harvest festival, uh, we'll have great food, we'll have uh, activities for people to do, and it'll really be uh, kind of their opportunity to come and see our plans for what we want to do with this site. Uh, The reconciliation component is also uh, a big uh, idea. We're working with the local indigenous community. Uh, We're speaking with them about how they could see activating the site, what kind of things they'd like to see there. And so that's been really fruitful and exciting.
3: Can I can I ask you to unpack that a little bit? We've we've actually spent um, the last few weeks spending a fair bit of time talking about um, uh, the environment, moving, uh, interfacing with indigenous communities at all. Was there any any additional things you could say on that? Have you uh, how was the reception to those inquiries? How did that go?
6: The reception has been really great. Uh, we have been working with communities, uh, the Wickwemekon community. We did a, one of our Imagine My Sustainable Community programs there with their youth, uh, and we're working in Tayandana, Uh Next coming up, and uh, that side of it is really sort of uh, bringing design expertise uh, and uh, working with the youth to uh, impart knowledge so that they can design their own communities. So that's very exciting. Uh, the number nine gardens approach is: we have this property, we have uh, connections with uh, local indigenous people. They have different ceremonies and things that they want to want to actually. Uh, work on and facilitate. And so we're speaking with them of how this property can help uh, provide an opportunity for them. So uh, we're in the talks right now and it's going really well.
3: Well, Andrew, I'm afraid we we are – believe it or not, we're actually out of time already. Oh, that was um, fast. (laughs) So um, I'd be happy to have you back in before September to announce it again. I'm really all about this project. It sounds really fabulous. Uh, Quite seriously, if you're an investor of any kind and you want to reach out to Andrew, I'm sure he'd be thrilled to hear from you. But in the interim, short of that, just let people know where they can go right now to get more information.
6: Yeah, so there's a lot of information on Number 9 Gardens on our website. Our website is www.no9.ca. And uh, if you go under the work that we're doing, under the, the menu there, you'll see plans for the development, and you'll see why we're doing it.
3: All right. Well, Andrew, we sincerely wish you the best, and thank you so much for your time Thanks, today. Sharon. Andrew Davies, the executive director for uh, Number 9. Oh, I can't remember the full name again. I'm sorry.
6: Contemporary <laughs> Art and the Environment. There
3: you go. All right, great. You've been listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community radio partners, and have a good green week. We'll see you all real soon.